Hello and welcome to the Tech Narratives podcast. My name is Jan Dawson. This is episode 73, the episode for Monday, October 9th. I have 10 items that I've written about on the site for subscribers today and then six items in the roundup. As usual, Monday is a busier day for the roundup given that there's a lot of longer reads and things that come out over the weekend. So I'll kick off with the 10 items from the site today, starting with number one, which is a story about Alphabet's Project Loon. Uh, This, you may recall, is a subsidiary of Alphabet, one of the other bets. It's one that uses high-altitude balloons to deliver internet connectivity, at least in theory. And the problem here is that there have been very few places where Alphabet has actually got permission for these balloons to run, and it's not really up and running in many places. But uh, the company's quite sensibly realized that it could be a really good fit for Puerto Rico in the wake of the recent hurricane and the loss of power and therefore cell service there. And so it's worked with some of the local operators there to uh, gain their agreement and then approach the FCC, which very quickly provided permission for it to start testing by passing a lot of the usual approval processes and so on that are necessary. This seems like a great fit for this technology. And it's interesting, Facebook at its uh, F8 developer conference earlier this year also talked about a technology designed for providing connectivity during emergencies. It's called Tether Tenor. It seems to be based on a helicopter. And so in some ways, those seem like much better focus areas for these companies than broad-based internet connectivity, where they don't really seem to have any meaningful advantages, whereas these air-based approaches seem like a great fit for situations where the traditional cellular carriers, emergency stuff, which tends to be based on big trucks uh, called cells on wheels or cows, doesn't seem to be a great fit, especially in a situation like Puerto Rico right now. So it's an interesting thought about where those companies could take some of their connectivity stuff, which otherwise doesn't seem to be making a ton of progress. Number two, this is actually three separate stories about Facebook, but they're all related, and so I dumped them all into a single comment on the site today. Firstly, Facebook announced over the weekend uh, that it's tightening ad review for things, uh, ads that use targeting involving politics, religion, uh, social issues, and things like this. This is obviously a response to the recent stuff that's come out about Russian ad targeting. Uh, Secondly, their uh, chief security officer, Alex Stamos, went on a bit of a Twitter rant over the weekend complaining about media coverage around the Russia story. And then thirdly, Uh, There was a story on CBS about how the Trump campaign had used Facebook in very deliberate and sophisticated ways, uh, including uh, leaning on Facebook employees who were sympathetic to the campaign to build campaigns and make them effective. All of this ties together. This is all about Facebook's power as a platform for reaching the right people with the right things and exerting influence over them for better or worse. Uh, That can obviously be used legitimately, as it was by the Trump campaign, albeit in ways which uh, many people may not agree with. They they didn't break any of Facebook's um, terms and conditions. Uh, And Alex Stamos's complaints about the media coverage are partly legitimate. I've talked about how I think some of this stuff's overblown, how some of the proposed solutions are oversimplified and so on. So I think he has some legitimate complaints there. But really, this is about a fight between him and his team and the PR team at Facebook, which seems determined not to talk about any of this stuff in detail and to share the bare minimum whereas he clearly wants to talk about this more, wants to get engineers out there talking about it more. And so this is a bit of a conflict there. Uh, But this is all part of the ongoing sort of quagmire that Facebook's been dragged into here. Number three, uh, figures came out from the Department of Transportation and the National Highway Transportation uh, Safety Administration about the number of fatalities on U.S. roads last year uh, involving vehicles. And so these are numbers that come out every year. It takes a remarkably long time to gather all of those figures. We're already in October and we're finally getting the numbers for last year. The key point is that the numbers actually went up slightly year on year, uh, about 5.6%. It was about 8-something percent uh, the year before. So we've had two relatively big rises after a long period of about 30, 40 years where these numbers have largely been coming down. Um, Some of the key things here are uh, what they call human choices drive a lot of these accidents. So 
uh, or at least a lot of the fatalities. So uh, drunk driving, distracted driving, drowsy driving, speeding, um, and not wearing seatbelts is a huge contributor. Almost half of the fatalities that occurred inside vehicles uh, were with people who weren't wearing seatbelts. Uh, so there's a lot of human choices here. And so the big argument for autonomous driving is always that it could reduce these types of accidents. All those things about human choices in terms of the way people drive would certainly be reduced significantly if uh, computers could learn to drive at least at the same level as a non-impaired human being. And the challenge is, of course, you've still got all those people who don't wear seatbelts and so on. So given the vast majority of cars will be non-autonomous, even when autonomous cars start arriving on roads, things like seatbelt use actually can have a far bigger effect in the short term uh, than autonomous driving. But as we'll talk about later on in the episode, that doesn't mean there couldn't be some significant safety gains from autonomous driving. Number four, Google announced, or rather didn't announce, it was reported by the Washington Post and then some additional details filled in by the New York Times and others, uh, that the Google had actually seen ad spending from some of the same Russian connected entities that had previously been disclosed as spending money on Facebook and Twitter during the uh, presidential campaign last year and previously. Um, so the, the last of the sort of trio of big ad-based uh, online advertising companies in the US now all disclosing some kind of connection either publicly or through sources. Um, the Washington Post originally said that there was $100,000 or so of spending, which is on the same sort of order as Facebook. Two caveats, though. The New York Times and others have reported since this reporting came out that the actual number that's definitively linked to uh, government-backed accounts is much smaller, somewhere in the $5,000 range. And there's another $50,000 um, that was spent from Russia but may have been spent legitimately, and they haven't quite dug into that yet. The other key thing is that, and we talked about this a little bit last week, well, on Facebook you can use ads to sort of seed something and then help it to go viral. If you target the right people with the right story, the organic reach then takes it much further than uh, the ads themselves can reach. And so we talked about that in a study about that last week. Uh, the key thing here is this was on YouTube and Gmail where this money was spent. And there's really nothing like the same sort of viral impact there of spending a small amount of money on advertising. You don't have the social network. You do have the ability to like and share and so on. As things gain in popularity, they can go viral on YouTube, but they have nothing like the social effects and the magnification there that happens on Facebook. So even though that 100,000 figure sounds very similar to the overall number, uh, A, only a small chunk of that's actually been tied to the Russian government, and B, the organic effects are likely much smaller. So it's quite a different proposition, uh, but doesn't mean that Google isn't going to get dragged into all of this stuff anyway. Number five, this is another sort of trifecta of stories, this time about Hulu. Uh, first of all, Bloomberg reports that uh, Hulu has been buying some big TV series, that the key one they mentioned is This Is Us, which has been a big hit on uh, NBC over the last couple of years, and Hulu has acquired that uh, property that previously you know, Netflix would have bought, uh, but quite a number of other shows as well. It's sort of indicative of the $2.5 billion Hulu said it's going to spend this year on content. It really does seem to be upping its spending on both current and library TV shows and bulking up its library as a way to try to make its service more appealing. Secondly, it's acquired some eSports content. It's something we've seen Facebook and Amazon do already. Um, this is a very small acquisition, just 15 hours total of programming, so quite small, but it's first foray into sports in general as far as I'm aware. And then thirdly, uh, uh, there's another report from Variety about uh, price cut and Hulu. So it's it's reduced the price of its base tier from $8 to $6. It's a temporary price cut that will go back up again in January, uh, but will last for a year for anybody who signs up uh, during that period. And this basically seems to be a way for Hulu to get more subscribers onto the service at the base tier, potentially upsell them over time 
to either its ad-free option or even to its live TV option, which is going to be promoting heavily over the next few weeks. So uh, again, all of these commitments or signs rather of the commitment at Hulu to both improve the value of the service and then to try to drive subscribership that continues to be well behind Netflix. My recent survey suggests about a quarter of the adoption of Netflix in the US. So long way behind, uh, but with big broadcast network backers, uh, clearly has the opportunity to build up the, the content that's exclusive to Hulu and to make that more attractive over time. Number six, uh, and this kind of relates back to that NHTSA uh, study about uh, driving fatalities I mentioned earlier. Both Waymo and Intel separately have launched campaigns today promoting autonomous driving and uh, autonomous driving technology. Uh, Intel's doing this by itself and it's running TV ads with LeBron James, among others. Uh, promoting this stuff and the sort of safety of the technology. A bit misleading because there really aren't these cars out there today that you can actually buy in and go for a drive in unless you're in very limited parts of the country. Um, so it's kind of funny in that sense. Waymo is doing this with partners, including Mothers Against Drunk Driving, uh, some other safety-oriented organizations, a couple of organizations that uh, serve the blind and um, seniors, for example. So a broad sort of coalition there. And that's less about TV advertising and more about what they say is starting a conversation about self-driving. So there's a hashtag and various other things. So slightly different approaches. Waymo, of course, participating very directly in this, although a long way from having kind of commercial services out there on any kind of broad basis. Intel, of course, uh, is an indirect participant in all of this. Yes, it's bought mobile eye and yes, it has an increasing amount of uh, relationships with car companies and so on. But uh, an indirect participant, but of course, the Intel Inside campaign back in the uh, well, back in the day, twenty years ago, or whatever that was, um, was another example of that. They and Qualcomm both continue to market to consumers, even though consumers can't buy their products directly. All of this feels a bit premature, but it's clearly a response to some recent surveys that suggest that people are very skeptical about autonomous driving. These companies wanted to start the sort of education process pretty early. Speaking of autonomous driving, number seven is. Uh, GM's cruise automation subsidiary has acquired a LiDAR startup called Strobe. And this is really a sign of their deepening investment in self-driving and, and um, mobility as a service in these, these key areas here. Um, it now has arguably uh, sort of brains of self-driving through cruise automation itself, although debatable how far along that technology is. It has now the sensors through Strobe, uh, which is LiDAR technology, one of the key sensors required for autonomous driving. And it has some sort of ride-sharing services where this could be deployed. And Cruise has one of those at a very nascent stage. GM itself has its whole Maven subsidiary that has a variety of interesting ownership and leasing and, and uh, as-a-service type models as well. So it seems to be deeper than most of the other certainly big U.S. car companies in terms of investing in some of this stuff. Done a lot of that through acquisitions and various things. Um, but uh, no idea how good that LiDAR technology is. It's a very small company, 11 employees. Uh, the, the key value proposition is the, the LiDAR sensor is smaller than in some other uh, uh, vendors' deployments of it, but uh, Velodyne continues to dominate that market, and so this may be mostly just a hedge on the part of GM here. Number eight, Costco has launched a grocery delivery service. It's a two-day delivery thing where you can order online and get your groceries two days later. Costco, of course, is, has this warehouse-based approach to stores, and in some ways that means that the benefits of shipping from a central warehouse versus shipping from a store, people picking up in a store, the economics aren't that different because there's not a ton of attention put into display and that kind of thing. It's very bare bones if you've ever shopped at a Costco. And so uh, the interesting wrinkle here is there's a very small delivery fee 
but prices are going to be 15 to 17 percent higher on their site if you order that way so not all that compelling if you actually check the prices and so on they may be banking on the fact that most consumers don't i think most of us assume if we're shopping at costco it's all discounted because it's in bulk and so on uh, that isn't always the case even in the stores and certainly won't be the case online either uh, but online of course comparison shopping is that much easier and so it's going to be a tough sell for them to do this they're also investing in a partnership with instacart uh, for faster deliveries in certain cities so interesting to see them go down that route Number nine, Microsoft has added integration with five smart home vendors to Cortana. Among those are Nest and Hue, for example, Samsung Smart Things subsidiary. Uh, there's also Wink, which is a pretty peripheral sort of smart home player. It's gone through a number of different owners over the last couple of years. And then Insteon, which has a long-running partnership with Microsoft around the smart home. Uh, this is interesting given that uh, Alexa and Cortana have a partnership through which uh, one of the major value propositions was Cortana would be able to control smart home gear through Alexa. That uh, was going to be awkward to do. It hasn't launched yet. Um, and so it's funny to see this come out first. But of course, the timing here is all tied to the new speakers that are Cortana-based that are coming out from Harman Kardon and HP and others. Uh, and so Microsoft clearly pursuing that opportunity themselves rather than just relying on that Alexa integration, which feels smart. Uh, given that smart home control is one of the big value propositions of uh, voice speakers in the home. And then lastly, second Microsoft story here, uh, Joe Belfiore, who used to be sort of the face of Windows on mobile and uh, Windows phone and so on for a long time, uh, announced in some tweets over the weekend that he's actually switched to using Android himself and that basically Microsoft doesn't see future feature development from a software perspective or new hardware as something that it's really focused on right now. And that's really just validation of what we've seen from Microsoft over the last couple of years, although there's never been a formal statement about it. They're clearly much more focused on producing apps for iOS and Android, uh, some of which have been very good. They still have a big challenge, though, around actually monetizing those and building a business model around all of that. So that's the last of the 10 items from the site today, just six items to round up for you very quickly. Interesting piece from Benjamin Mayo, who writes for 9to5Mac, among other sites. Uh, and he's really done a deep dive into what it's like to try to develop for the Apple Watch. And specifically, he highlights the fact that Apple's own apps on the Apple Watch make use of a lot of clever user interface design and so on, which is not available if you're a third-party developer. And he talks about just how limiting the user interface tools are for uh, developers if they're developing for watchOS. And so it's an interesting sort of take there. Secondly, the New York Times has a piece by a mother who writes about an experience with her daughter testing out uh, Alexa and the daughter's reaction to it and then uses that to tie into some broader stuff about how children respond to voice assistants and how children are going to grow up with these uh, virtual assistants and what that's going to mean for them. Thirdly, VentureBeat has a transcript of a Q&A with Alex Kipman at last week's Microsoft virtual reality event. Alex Kipman is sort of the VR head at Microsoft. Uh, he kind of talks through communication and social as being a killer app for VR, which is kind of a new message from Microsoft we haven't heard before. They did just acquire Altspace VR, which focuses on that area. So interesting to see them talk about that. Microsoft really hasn't been a big player in VR so far, but had that big launch event last week. We're seeing headsets coming out in the next little while here. So interesting to hear about that. Uh, the FT, the Financial Times, has a piece about kids and smartphones and how they use them. And uh, based on some studies and, and small-scale studies done in the UK, but also really digging into how kids' lives are being changed by smartphones and the other technology that they use. The Hollywood Reporter has a piece about YouTube and their ambitions to take on Netflix and Hulu and uh, get deeper into the sort of paid and subscription TV space and so on. So an interesting sort of read there. And then lastly, The Guardian in the UK has an interview with uh, Google CEO Sundar Pichai 
um, talks about AI and various other things. So interesting detail there as well. So as usual, links to all of those, along with everything else that I talked about earlier in the show notes. So go check those out if any of those are interest to you. And as always, there's a deeper dive on the 10 items that I wrote about on the site on the site for subscribers as well. Thanks very much for listening. We'll be back with another episode tomorrow. Bye-bye.